Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, what does the global data tell us about Ireland's fight against coronavirus? But before we start today, um, if you read the journal, you may have seen our appeal in the past few days for you to support our journalism. It's a difficult time for media as advertising revenues fall drastically, but we are and want to keep providing you with valuable, accessible journalism. If you feel it's important for society to have that open access to news and good information like this podcast, please head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute. If you can, that is, we're really aware that this is a tough time for a lot of people. So we're only asking for if you can do it and for what you can manage. So back to this week's topic. Our lexicon has changed dramatically since the outbreak of COVID-19. Exponential growth, cocooning, social distancing, furlock. There are so many words, a lot of them to do with the restrictions being imposed on our movements. But many of the phrases usually belong to just data scientists and analysts. But there is a desire from us all, I think, to know how we are doing. And we look to numbers to tell us that a lot. It is completely grim to tune into the chief medical officer's press conference every day, but a lot of us do it anyway, to hear the number of new cases of COVID-19 and sadly the number of deaths as well per day from COVID-19. We get a breakdown of hospitalizations, a county by county transmission figure and the most impacted age categories. But what are these figures telling us and can they predict how well or how badly this will all go for Ireland? To help us to understand what data is important and what we should be wary of, I'm delighted to be joined for this episode by the Financial Times Senior Data Visualisation Journalist John Byrne Murdoch and Professor Mary Horgan, President of the Royal College of Physicians of Ireland. Also with me, I say in inverted commas from underneath my blanket on the kitchen table, is Nikki Ryan, the assistant producer of this podcast and also author of, if I may say, our brilliant coronavirus newsletter, which we send out on a daily basis and you can sign up to and I would advise you to do so. Uh, Nikki, you were tuned into the latest from uh, Tony Holohan that I mentioned there um, last night. We were due to hear from, um, I should say that we're uh, recording this on Friday morning. Uh, We were due to hear about modelling. What exactly were we told? Well, firstly, Sinead, um, while you're underneath a blanket at your kitchen table, I am underneath a duvet in my bedroom and it is stiflingly warm. But um, we'll get through this anyway. So last night, we we didn't quite hear as much as we expected, to be honest. And I think there might have been some disappointment among the people who have been closely tracking the numbers of what's going on right now in Ireland. But obviously, you know, the people involved in this modelling and this data, they're very busy right now. This is a pandemic. Um, So it's good to get whatever insight we can. So last night, the CMO was joined by Professor Philip Nolan. So he's chair of a modelling advisory group who's working with the National Public Health Emergency Team. Um, Philip Nolan has appeared a couple of times at these briefings, but last night he was there to give a large update on um, the modelling that he and a team of around 50 mathematicians have been working on. So they've been crunching the numbers and they presented um, an important graph at this meeting, um, which basically showed the number of cases per day over a period of four months in Ireland. There's a blue line on this graph which shoots up to around 100,000 cases per day, um, which obviously isn't you know, ideal whatsoever, um, but that would have been a situation if we had sat back and done nothing. There was another line on this graph, a red one, showing what would have happened if we had only taken some of those initial measures. So what would have happened if we'd only closed the schools and universities and introduced a limited number of social distancing measures. 
the peak of cases per day then would have been around 60,000. Um, and obviously that is not a situation that we're in right now. Um, so then where, where are we now? So ideally, there would have been another um, line on that graph, maybe a nice green line showing something of a flattened curve, because that's sort of where we're at right now. So we don't have the exact modelling for based on what's happening right now, what's going to happen over the next few weeks. But we were given a couple of figures which kind of indicate which way we're going. So firstly, we were told about the growth rate in, in the number of cases. So that was stood at around 30% in the early stages of this epidemic in Ireland. And that number is frankly just not good at all. So what we're saying there is that each day, the following day, we'd have a 30% increase or 33% increase on what the number the day before was. Yeah, that's exactly it. So in the early stages, it might not have been obvious that the increase was that great because the numbers were so low. Um, But as time goes on, because this grows exponentially, um, the numbers get greater and greater at a very large rate. Um, So which is why... 30% 30% doesn't sound that bad, but it actually was not, not an ideal figure by any stretch of the imagination. So the good news is that last week that was down to around 15%. Not ideal, but still good. But we're improving that so that over the past five days, that growth rate was below 10%. It was around 9%. So that's kind of a quantifiable sign that what the authorities have put in place, those new measures, the stay-at-home order, that they're working. Now, People also question whether that's because the level of testing is down. And I know there's a lot of questions around what level of testing is actually happening in Ireland. But there's another factor, there's another set of figures that we can look at to gauge how well or how badly things are going. And that's the ICU admissions. Um, I think it's good to be clear to our listeners right now that the number of ICU admissions last week, they were quite worrying. Philip Nolan described the growth rate as a worryingly rapid rate. Um, And, you know, this week we saw that um, in the ICU department of the Matter Hospital, which I am actually, I'm looking at the Matter Hospital outside my bedroom window right now in Dublin. um, There were no free beds in the ICU department. They were looking at using surge capacity in the high dependency unit there. And that's the HDU. And then also as a last resort, using ventilators on wards, which is they're not anywhere near that yet. But they kind of put the put the groundwork in place to be looking at the situation. But thankfully, what Philip Nolan pointed out last night is that the number of ICU admissions has kind of stabilised. So there's around 140 to 150 people in ICU. When we start to see those figures hopefully fall over the next 10 days, that's another solid indication that everything is actually going to plan. Okay, so one of the other numbers that we hear about is the effective reproductive number. Can you explain to me what it is and where we're at now in Ireland? Two months ago, I would have said, Sinead, I haven't a clue what you're talking about. But as you're saying, we're learning loads of new um, words and phrases right now. So, yes, I can explain what that is. Um, we might, people might have seen this written down as the letter or and a number. So, for example, or one or maybe or four. This refers to, to the number of people, each person with COVID-19 or another contagious disease, and um, the number of people that they spread it onto. So when this epidemic started, that number was around four. And when we closed the schools, that fell to around 2.7. And, but now that stands at just above one. And that is very good news because it means that every person in Ireland with COVID-19 is passing it on to one or maybe more than one people. Um, now, obviously, that's also bad news because the disease is still spreading. And if we get that number below one, that means that every person with COVID-19 is spreading it to less than one other person. That means that the disease will slowly start to disappear in this country. 
but we aren't there yet and that's what the hope is and hopefully when we see modeling we will be there and that's when the curve will have flattened yeah, that's that's what we're going to hopefully see over the next few weeks. I mean, the, hopefully in the next couple of weeks when Philip Nolan gives his next major update on this, hopefully he will be in a position to say that the OR number is now less than one. And that will mean that that's when kind of the end is in sight, that we might have an idea of when the disease will burn itself out, essentially, in this country. Thanks so much for that, Mickey. I'm going to bring in John Byrne Murdoch now. As I said, he is the senior data visualization journalist with the Financial Times and has become a bit of a superstar uh, among everybody, I guess, during this uh, outbreak, because we've all been watching his graphs and his analysis on the Financial Times of how each and every country is doing. John, one of the things um, when people keep hearing what we were talking about there with Nikki, the press conference every day with the chief medical officers. He gives those details of new cases, death rates, the number of deaths in a day, the number of people we have in ICU, um, the number of testing figures we get once a week. It can be hard for people to parse all of this stuff. Um, they do want to know if we're doing okay and will things be okay. But is there a simple rule for people to help them understand what these numbers mean or could indicate What's happening? Sure, I mean, and yeah, thanks for having me on. It's been a it's been a wild few weeks, but um, yeah, I'm I'm sort of in, enjoying my newfound role of trying to help people make sense of this stuff. Um, so yeah, in a in a possibly counterintuitive um, answer to that, I would say the first thing is try not to actually listen to those daily numbers. And what I mean by that is the 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 closer I've worked with this data, the longer I've spent digging into it, the more clear it is that the number that you hear on any one day is is much more noise than signal. It's much more a, a function of like how the data has been compiled and how it's reported and, and all that kind of stuff than of what the actual ground truth is. So I think the thing people should be doing is thinking, okay, if I look back over the last few days, last week or so, what direction do the numbers seem to have been going in? Um, so just to give you an example of why I say that, there's there's some really interesting quirks that you see when you start looking deeper into the data here, and, and we see this in countries all over the world. So one thing that crops up all over the place is you get this sort of weekly cyclical patterns in the data, and this is caused by um, the way that the data on COVID-19 deaths is, is collated and brought together and then put out. So when you think about it, recording um deaths is you know it's not the not a particularly pleasant business but it's a business like any other in the sense that there are certain things get done at certain times in the week so what you'll see when you look at the data on new deaths or cases with with covid um in the uk um i suspect this might be true of ireland as well it's certainly true in the us and spain and italy also is on Sunday and Monday, the new announced death numbers go down very slightly. And then on Tuesday, they spike back up. And you see that, like I say, every week, and you see it in multiple countries. And what's going on there is the people whose job it is to record this information and to inform the families of those who sadly lost their lives, they're partly less able to, and, and, and it's also less easy to, to get that stuff done over the weekend. So even if the number of people sadly dying with uh, having tested positive for COVID is the same every day, on Sunday and Monday, the days after Saturday and Sunday when, when reporting uh, sort of dips a little bit, 
you'll see the numbers of deaths drop. And then on Tuesday, that backlog is released and suddenly everything shoots upwards. So immediately you can see the problem in listening to the numbers every day because they are subject to all sorts of little um, peaks and troughs, which are actually nothing to do with what's actually happening in the, uh, in the hospitals on the ground and more to do with how this stuff is recorded. So as, as unhelpful as it may sound, my, my advice would be try not to hang too much um, of, your, of your sort of thinking about this on any one number. And instead, you know, look at how those numbers have changed over the last week. And do they seem to be leveling off? Are they going up? Are they going down? And that's the kind of thing you should be thinking. I'd also say, you know, the media and politicians have a responsibility here too. I think those of us who are increasingly aware of these quirks in the data, we should really stop talking about the number on any given day and stop saying things like death toll today reached a, reached an all-time peak or the death toll today fell for the first time because that's just not really how this works. The numbers we hear every day are, are a bit like getting a glimpse at a fast-moving vehicle and what you should really be doing is looking at where that vehicle has moved over the last several hundred yards if you want to know where it's going next. What information do you think is the most important stuff that you are imparting um, between that qualitative and quantitative? Um, so when people do come to your work, um, what are you hoping that they take from it? Sure. I mean, I think there's a few things. The, the initial goal with these charts was just to emphasize the sort of inevitability of coronavirus outbreaks to say that, look, if your country is, is only having a handful of cases or, or one or two deaths per day at the moment, that may be true today, but based on what we've seen everywhere else in the world, or pretty much everywhere else, that means that in a couple of weeks it'll be hundreds of cases and dozens of deaths per day. So, so the main thing was just to to emphasize that, so, sort of speaking to healthcare officials and government officials, really, to say this is this is coming for you as it has done everywhere else, and to assume that oh, we're it doesn't seem much of a big deal for us today would be a big mistake. So that was one goal. Um, I think now it's increasingly about trying to to provide more context for people so you know so people can can compare their country's trajectory to other countries and work out again how how bad or or perhaps hopefully less bad things are looking for them what what should they be expecting down the line like as as members of the public um are they on a trajectory where a government lockdown is inevitable and therefore should they should they be thinking about how they're going to to deal with that um, as we move further along the line to where we are today, it's maybe about countries saying when might they they see the peak of the outbreak and therefore when can they start hoping about potential um, relaxation of lockdowns. I th I'm sure some of your listeners will know that Austria, for example, has announced that next week after Easter they're planning to start reopening some things. Um, so it's really about taking what is obviously quite an alarming, quite scary story and allowing people, wherever they are in the world, to get a bit more of an idea of um, how bad things might get and how good, how you know when things might reach a turning point, and and just contextualise something that would otherwise be just a bit overwhelming. Yeah. So one of the things at the start of our outbreak here in Ireland, um, there was a lot of chat about like let's not be as bad as Italy, and to do that we need to flatten the curve. So I think everyone's basic understanding of looking at these charts is. We want that line to look as straight as possible, as quickly as possible. Um, is that a good way of looking at how good slash bad a country is doing? Sure. And, and I mean, I'd say I think it's probably a little bit more nuanced on that than I, than I sometimes 
um, make out in my my comments and, and tweets and that kind of thing. So it's it's not that you know it's not that I don't think there is any utility to that, um, but I just think it's it's not nearly as simple as as people think. So obviously, in most statistics, whether this refers to diseases or anything else, adjusting for population size is a is a very is just a basic first step that you do to make the data um, more more meaningful. You know, if 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 I wanted to know about um, cancer prevalence, for example, and I said, oh, far more people in the US have cancer than in Ireland, that wouldn't really be telling me anything because, of course, there are far more people in the US than Ireland, full stop, and cancer occurs at a sort of percentage-based rate. Um, but with a, with a virus that spreads from person to person, there's no, there's no reason that you would have, um, that a larger population alone would lead to more people having the virus. Now, of course, a denser population, people mixing more frequently, um, or, a, or, a, or a country that has more international and domestic transport hubs, that kind of thing. The, these, these things which lead to people moving around more, interacting more, can all lead to a faster spread of a virus. But population size alone doesn't necessarily have an impact. And, and I've looked at this in the data as well, and it's true that when you plot um, country's population versus the number of deaths from coronavirus in that country, there is there's no pattern whatsoever. So um, so when you do adjust the population and get per capita rates, all you're essentially doing is is making small countries look worse simply because that denominator, the total population size, is smaller, and making larger countries look better. And I'd say it's it's not a coincidence that the the majority of emails that we've had at the FT from people asking for per capita adjustments are from Americans. And you know, I'm I'm not trying to be flippant there, but there is clearly an element of the people who a lot of people who want this number is because they feel like their country is being judged harshly. Um, and and yeah, I would say I would just say that if people you know. If people want to adjust the population size, that's fine. But just when you think about the way a virus spreads, if you have an outbreak that starts in Zurich in Switzerland, a coronavirus outbreak, and one that starts in New York, USA, um, there's no reason that the that the outbreak in Switzerland would infect fewer people than the one in New York based on population alone. You know, these are both dense cities where people move around a lot, and you would expect that if the if the two um, healthcare systems put in the same restrictions. If as Zurich and New York both locked down, the number of cases you'd end up with would be quite similar. The reason that the US is now seeing so many cases is that the complete lack of any lockdowns very very early on, and then the sort of quite piecemeal and state by state responses that we've seen since then mean that the US is now dealing with dozens of outbreaks. It's got an outbreak in New York, there's an outbreak in Washington, there's an outbreak in Florida, in California, etc. So, the, and you know, that's not purely because the US has more people, it's because um, action was taken later and people who had been infected were allowed to travel all over the country and all over the world beforehand. So, so yeah, the, the per capita thing, I think it's, it's mainly just that I don't want to see small countries accused of having dealt with this badly when when they haven't they simply have smaller populations and yeah it's also just that the the numbers that we hear in the news every day are of course the uh the absolute numbers of deaths and cases and i think once you start talking in per capita terms you you introduce um numbers that people don't really have any reference point with you know we're never going to be talking here about say 
50% of the population in a country um, dying, um, thankfully. And and so and we're instead going to be talking about sort of 100 cases per million or um, 50 deaths per million. And that kind of number is, there's no real way to conceptualise that. So I think you end up trying to introduce this, this concept of, of more rigour and precision, but you just make the numbers harder to grasp and then up punishing smaller countries. Yeah, and you use, lose the human element. And going back to your point about journalism, you don't ever want to use the lose the human element of of in your journalism. Similar question, um, but I'm I have actually no idea about the answer on this. The the testing numbers what that we see, and we've had a big issue with this um, in Ireland trying to figure out where our testing is, and we've been told we're in the top tier of countries doing the best amount of testing those testing numbers are given per million so you know we've done approximately 6,000 tests per million is that a good way of looking at the data and judging countries off each other um kind of in the opposite way of not doing per capita yeah i'd say it is yeah and and again for a couple of reasons so one is that if um two countries have the same number of tests but one is much larger than the other then the coverage in that larger country is worse and the the same you know the same arguments I've just been making don't really don't really apply here because we're not talking about this this isn't about saying you know um, making one country look good or one country look bad it's about saying how much can we trust the data that we do have and in a country where the testing coverage is very extensive where a high percentage of the population has been tested then we can be confident that their numbers of cases and deaths are are more of a true picture of what's going on on the ground in a country that has only very patchy testing the the te- the, the number of confirmed cases and, and deaths of people who've tested positive is going to be a huge undercount and and it's also likely to bounce around much more from day to day so so yeah this is this is um this is a case where the the uh, coverage of the testing the percentage of the population that being tested is essentially a sort of um quality um, badge for for how much we can trust the country's data and then I would still suggest looking at the absolute numbers of cases or deaths because they are still um, then showing us how bad the outbreak how, how quickly the outbreak is spreading but yeah of course the the worse the coverage of that testing the less we can trust that data it's, it's sort of like um, again it's coming back to the analogy of, of looking at a, a fast moving object or looking at a a picture but most of it is obscured or like pixelated out so for you are the most important bits of data that governments should be making available to the public are they absolute number of cases and the death number well so i think i think testing data we absolutely need so we need that to know can we trust this country's data and then the cases and death numbers after that are yeah i think the key the key metrics one thing i would add to that is hospitalizations are emerging as well as a very good sort of compromise between cases and deaths. So of course the problem with cases is that um, even where countries are doing a lot of testing, you can see almost almost as a um, sort of double-edged sword, the result of doing more testing is you get more confirmed cases. So, so there are some countries where it looks like they're seeing a surge in cases, which could be alarming, but it's actually just that they're doing much better at testing more people. So that's the weakness of testing. You can you can see a number going up, which could be bad, but it's actually a good thing. The, the issue with deaths um, is that there are lagging indicators. So it takes um, between a week and three weeks for, typically for someone who's infected with coronavirus to, to die if they do suddenly die. And so looking at death counts at any given time 
sort of tells you where the country was a couple of weeks earlier in terms of the spread. So the reason hospitalizations can come in as a good um, middle ground is that hospitalizations are a they're better than than confirmed cases in the sense that they're showing you how many people you know have have this and have it seriously so to the extent that they need urgent care and they're a much quicker indicator than deaths so they may you may get a hospitalization data point within a week of someone being infected where a death would take two weeks or more and we are fortunately now seeing more countries start to report that data so the uk in its government um press conferences every day is now publishing hospitalization data um the us we have that data italy and spain and i'm not, not sure if that's the case in ireland as well you you did decide to add lockdown markers to um your your graph so we, we can tell when a country decided to introduce huge restrictions on people's movements um has there been a pattern that has emerged from when those measures were introduced and what happens to the number of cases and number of deaths there, there has been, you know, it's still, it's, it's still difficult to tell because of how, you know, asking how much do we trust the individual daily numbers, and, and also one, one elephant in the room here that I haven't mentioned yet is that pretty much all the data we have is from deaths that occur in hospital only, so there are large numbers of additional deaths that occur, what we say, in the community, so in nursing homes and things like that, and so, you know, looking at the data I have which is these these daily reported deaths in hospitals, there's typically um, a lag of between two and three weeks of a of a full national lockdown being put into place and the numbers of new infections starting to flatten out. So, you know, that, that's not to say um, you stop getting new infections, but the number of daily new infections stops increasing day to day. Um, but as I'd say, so that's, that's a two or three week um, lag between lockdown and and this and the the increase in cases starting to flatten but as i say um that's with with all sorts of caveats about the that, we, that we've mentioned so far in terms of how much can we trust the data on any given day and how comprehensive a picture do these do these statistics present so so I, i'd say yes we 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 do see that lockdowns do have an impact at two two or three weeks later on but the the other important point to make here is that when a country reaches the peak in terms of its most new infections per day that doesn't mean oh great so the, so on so the day after that everyone can just go back to normal life um if we look at wuhan in china um and of course you know there are reasons to doubt the the numbers coming out of china but the pattern in the numbers there um two months on now from when or more than two months on from when they first locked down their their numbers of new cases and deaths um have come down substantially but they're still essentially locked down so we're tracking traffic congestion on on the roads in wuhan every day and it's still essentially zero so this idea um that once we reach the peak it's all it's all happy days i think is very misleading and we're now seeing a consensus across countries and governments and um, and their medical departments that this idea of an exit strategy um, is proving pretty elusive. The consensus seems to be that you lock down in order to, to flatten the curve, but then any relaxation to those lockdowns will really will result in the curve ticking up again. So I would just say that, you know, of course it's good if, in, if new infections start coming down, um, but it 
people shouldn't uh, necessarily read into that uh, great. So by end of April or May, um, things will be things will be sorted. Just going to end on on kind of a a more granular question about the types of charts you use um because one of the things that you have explained through your twitter and stuff is that you're using a logarithmic chart can you explain what it is and why you're using that particular uh, method sure so um yeah so a log a log scale a logarithmic scale um is one where the the same distance on the chart represents the same multiplicative difference and I'll, i realize that's already extremely jargony so um, a linear chart, you know, the scale goes one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Um, the, the the log scale um, essentially goes one, two, four, eight, sixteen. So doubling each time, or one, ten, a hundred, a thousand. So so each um, each each bit of space you move along the axis, things are multiplied by the same amount. Now the reason that is particularly useful for a virus chart is that that's how that's exactly how viruses spread as well. If if one person has coronavirus and they mix with a large group of people, you don't just have um, a second person gets it and then a third gets it and then a fourth gets it. The second person infects more people and the third infects more people. So, so you get that same, for every passage of time, the rate, the number of people infected doubles or triples or quadruples. So by plotting this data on a, on a log scale, instead of having these alarming curves that sort of start Flat and then accelerate up into up into the sky. We the same the same um, pattern of data would be shown as a straight line um, heading diagonally upwards. Now people might say, oh well, that's that's playing down the the uh, the danger that we're dealing with here. But I would say I, the the tool of the the goal with these charts has always been to allow people to see where things might be a few days down the line. And by using a log scale, we have these straight lines that allow people to to you know just just use their hand use their use a pencil use their eyes to work out here we are today and if i follow this straight line here's where we might be in a week's time with a with a linear scale you'd have these big sweeping arcs which are very hard to project forward um and and which essentially use a lot of sort of visual space and and uh, and noise to not really tell you anything because if every country arcs upwards in that same way then this arcing pattern, which would dominate the chart, is not actually telling you anything in particular. It's just saying this is an exponentially growing virus. But by putting them on a log scale, um, you can look at the slight differences between one country's slope and another country's and learn from that interesting things about which country might be doing better than the other and where they are in their, in their virus timeline. Thanks so much for that, John, and for explaining, um, taking the time out to explain your work and what the data can mean to us. If anybody wants to see more of John's work, we'll include a link to the Financial Times pages in our explainer article. Um, and you'll also find him on Twitter as well. I'm going to go now to Professor Mary Horgan, president of the Royal College of Physicians of Ireland. Um, Mary, it's an incredibly busy time for you. You're on the front line as well. So thank you for taking the time to join us here on the explainer. We've been talking about how data has become an everyday part of our lives, looking at the stats around coronavirus. Um, but most of us aren't experts. Um, we're getting more knowledgeable, but we're not obviously there yet. But we do have this craving to know how we're doing um, and you know what all these numbers mean for us and, and our lives over the next few months. What can the data actually tell us about cases in Ireland right now? So firstly, the cases that are reported are dependent on the tests we do. And you know, a few weeks back that 
of hundreds of tests, for example, that were done, six of the people tested positive, so 94 didn't. So there was a 6% pick-up rate, which was very low. And as a result, they changed the way in which they were doing tests and really focused in on more high-risk groups, that is, frontline staff, people with, who are vulnerable, who are in um, long-term care facilities like nursing homes, people with chronic diseases. And as a result, that positivity rate went from 6% up to between 13 and 15%. I suppose you always say, well, if the um, numbers are going up, how many are there testing and how many are really being focused in on the most vulnerable groups? So we clearly are doing a better job in that. The statistics, I think, that are really important to look at are not just the total numbers. I mean, they're good when we compare ourselves to other places, but it's the number of people who end up in hospital, because that is an indicator of the people who get more severe disease. Now, saying that not everyone that comes into hospital ends up in the intensive care unit. So when I was rounding this morning, there were a few people in the intensive care unit in Cork University Hospital, but most of them are on the ordinary ward, which is the COVID ward. So all of the nurses in there, the physiotherapists and the doctors who are providing care would all be gowned up seeing those patients. So if the public or a person out there wants to look at disease severity, it's the number of people who are going into hospital and the number of people on ventilators. And I suppose the other, if you want, want to look at a good news part of it, is how many people are coming off ventilators. And so looking at, you know, the death rate, and unfortunately people die from this, but people do recover even when they're on ventilators. When you're on a ventilator, just as an aside, Mary, what, what's your state? Are you in a coma? Are you awake but not able to speak? What, what, what's generally people's state if they're on a ventilator? It, it's variable. It depends on um, their need for sedation. Now, I'm not an intensive care specialist, but um, many people are awake and, and can communicate, but other people need to be sedated so that their um, the ability of the machine to work and help your lungs can be tweaked according to the amount of oxygen that's required to get into your lungs and circulate in your blood. So it, it's variable. You've kind of run through a lot of the data that we're kind of seeing every day um, in those press conferences with the CMO, uh, Tony Holhan. But is there anything that jumps out of you out at you in terms of what you're worried about or what you're quite happy with when you when you see where we are at right now it hasn't got had a huge surge as had happened in Spain and Italy and our our neighbors in the, on both sides of us the UK um, and the US you know from that we we get comfort we were fortunate that we had our I suppose, uh, reduction in, in the movement, um, the social distancing brought in on the 12th of March in the UK. They didn't do it until the 23rd of March. So we were quite ahead um, doing that. And I think that has been one of the saving graces um, of what we're doing. Saying that, I suppose one of the concerns and, and uh, the Department of Health have addressed this is the clusters we have in long term care facilities and whether that's, you know, nursing home, uh, residents with uh, where there's in, into people with intellectual disabilities in, in long term care is, of course, a concern. And because, you know, they're vulnerable, we really need to protect them. And I believe their early intervention at stopping visitors prevented it from being even worse. 
So I, I, you know, the the additional uh, focus in on the healthcare workers providing care there, the education around using PPE is very, very welcome. Is there anything that you'd kind of warn people about if they are looking at this data every day? Um, is there any is there any health warnings that should come with the data? Yes, I mean, as I said earlier. The, the positive test results are a feature of the number of people tested. I always say to my patients in general, look, don't be worried about the numbers. If you trust the people who are telling you about the numbers, they will flag issues that are of concern to them. And if, if people really want to see how, I suppose, well we're doing too, is that there isn't a big increase in the numbers, um, that we look at the number of people on ventilators, is if, or the new people going on ventilators, if that's going down, that is really, really helpful. And the number of people who come off ventilators, they're all very, very um, encouraging results. You know, and there are some very good websites that compare us to other countries. And, you know, that is a good news story. I think what the public um, want and your listeners want is to hear that what they have done has really made a difference um, to the health of, of our population. And from what I see and, and talking to my colleagues over in the UK, I think we have done an extremely good job compared to other jurisdictions. Yeah, it's kind of become a national sport. Like, you know, we will flatten this curve. And, and that seems to be it's been a really strong rallying message. How long do you reckon we have to wait until we can say, yes, we have flattened the curve? So the Taoiseach and the chief medical officer were, you know, have said the end of this week, we'll have a good idea if the, I suppose, the interventions that the Taoiseach made um, two weeks ago will um, slow the tide. And just as a means of explanation, what the, the social distancing does, it prevents a tidal wave from coming into our health services, particularly in the hospitals. So instead of having a, a tidal where we've got, you know, a big wave that we're trying to flatten. But what will happen with time, we'll have smaller waves and that's that's the hope that there'll only be smaller waves and we are buying time until we get an effective treatment from, and we'll know that from the clinical trials that are going on or a vaccine or that enough of our population is immune. But we don't want to just expose everyone to it and get herd immunity. That would certainly put people who are vulnerable at huge risk and overwhelm our um, hospitals, our ICUs and so on. One of the other pieces of information that we're given every day is the median age of those who have contracted um, the virus, but also those who have died from the virus. Can you just explain to our listeners what we mean by median age and why it's an important um, piece of information that we are given? So I suppose the median age is um, the age of most of the people who are infected. So when you do statistics, um, you want to see, look, is there a particular uh, group that are more age group that are more vulnerable than others? And of course, we know um, older people are more vulnerable. But saying that there are a lot of really, really healthy old older people. So it gives us an idea of when people present to us that they are more likely to have an infection 
and more importantly, that they're more likely uh, maybe to require hospital um, admission if they're a particular age, if they're a particular gender, um, if they're overweight, if they have an underlying disease. And that's the information that's collected that helps inform frontline people of your risk of having uh, needing more intensive care or needing just hospital admission with more oxygen support. And that's why collecting that information is really important for us to predict how people will do from the illness. It seems that men, when they get the disease, they seem to be faring worse than women generally. Yeah, we, yeah absolutely. And we don't know why that is. Um, we also have noted that, uh, and certainly the, the information from the ICU registry over in the UK shows that 73% of people who end up in the intensive care unit are overweight. So there, are, this is information that's really important for us to collect um, so we can even monitor um, people like men. Obviously, we're going to monitor all our patients very closely. But, you know, we'd, we'd have a higher sense of suspicion and more monitoring in people who are in those risk groups. How are we um, compared to other countries? You mentioned that stat from the UK in collecting the data. Are we collecting the same level of data as other countries? Could we be doing more? Oh, no, we're, we're collecting the data in line with the WHO because the numbers from each of the countries feed into um, uh, the global figures. So that's kind of set in stone. And it's, it's really good because it's a good comparator for a comparator of one person, uh, you know, one jurisdiction to the other. And even within the country, how different counties, different cities are doing in comparison to others. So we, the data we collect has been really helpful for us, um, uh, both in public health, um, in the community, like our general practitioners, and also in the hospitals. So what we're collecting is what we need. Yeah, one of one of the stats, and you're on the front line, so this is obviously affecting uh, you and maybe just even the the chats you're having with your colleagues, that there is a large presence of healthcare workers in the data, you know, one in four cases about that. And then of those, about one in four are hospitalised. Yeah, so um, this came up early on in the statistics that were collected, that about a quarter of those infected were healthcare workers. But the HSE did further analysis of that and found that of those, uh, 25% of that 25% a quarter of them got it within their in their workplace. And I suppose that's not surprising because we're on the front line and during a pandemic, we assume that anyone who comes into the hospital is indeed, um, if they have any symptoms of cough, of fever um, or respiratory, you know, shortness of breath, we'll assume that they have COVID-19. But not everyone um, has symptoms and a lot of people have what we call asymptomatic shedders. And so we as healthcare staff see those patients. And of course, we're vulnerable to picking it up no different than the rest of the population. But, you know, we have been trained up to use PPE. We have COVID and non-COVID pathways for the, the, the population uh, that comes into the hospital. But, you know, that's a risk for our job all the time whether it's COVID or other infections like tuberculosis, um, other bloodborne infections, that's part of the reality of being a healthcare worker. But it is really important to monitor 
people, healthcare workers who are positive, because obviously they need to self-isolate, make sure that they don't get any of the complications of COVID-19 or indeed pass it on to um, other people within the hospital. But they are key frontline staff. So when they leave or have to leave because they're COVID positive, even if it's mild symptoms, we miss them as and their expertise in the front line. Yeah, one of the so the the positive rate of tests at the moment is what you said about fifteen percent. There must be other um, bugs, viruses, illnesses out there. Then, if there's that many people being tested who are negative, do do we know what else is out there? Like, or what's common at this time of the year? What are people being sick with? Influenza, the season peters out um, around March, April, so we shouldn't be seeing that. But there are other respiratory viruses like adenovirus and RSV that can cause similar symptoms. People get sore throat, they get group A strep, um, sore throats. Um, So there are other viruses and bacteria that can cause similar symptoms that may um, need um, may need treatment and may respond easily to the antibiotics that we have for those specific illnesses. So I suppose if your symptoms don't get better, if your breathing gets worse, you absolutely should be calling your um, general practitioner to get advice on what to do next. One last question. We've heard a lot about modelling and when we can see, when we can predict the peak of cases um, in Ireland. How does that modeling work do you know and how much stead can we put into it? A lot. Um, Professor Philip Nolan who is president of Maynooth University is le- leading a large team within the Department of Health to specifically looking at the, look at the modeling here. So essentially what modeling means is being able to predict how the infection is spread within uh, the community. So we know from the beginning that one person um, after a month can have um, infected uh, 400 people. So with the intervention or or the change of in in social distancing that has been put upon us, has that intervention changed, um, you know, uh, infecting one person to 400 and has it reduced? And we already know that um, because of modelling that if someone comes in to the hospital or into uh, their GP with with COVID, um, instead of the, the public health having to contract trace 20 people, it's now down to about five people. So clearly that modelling helps us get the understanding that the intervention of social distancing that was brought in really works. And there will be more information on that um, from from uh, Professor Nolan's group. Um, I, I, I'm sure it's imminent, but doing our own modelling because we are Ireland is not like the UK or the US or Italy, where you know while we have some urban centres, we're very rural also. So what applies in the UK doesn't necessarily apply to us. So doing our own modelling is essential in our ability to predict when we can. Um, maybe ease the sanctions um, of social distancing um, and and give us an idea of um, how we're doing from, um, and a lot of that is predicting, you know, use of hospital resources and particularly use of intensive care units. That that will give us an idea of when these uh, sanctions may be um, eased. Yeah, because we, we, you said earlier that you're quite positive about um, Ireland and that we've been doing a good job. But I think people will have heard this week that the matter intensive care units were full. Um, how worrying is that for you? Or 
um, can the data on that can change quite quickly? I suppose it, it can, you know, while they're full, the hope is that some of the um, people in there will be near coming off ventilators. Um, but, you know, that's a really important parameter to look at, because if we ease the sanctions all of a sudden this weekend, you would get another surge probably in two weeks time. And that would have serious implications for the use of intensive care unit beds in the country. And we don't want that to happen. We want everyone to get absolutely the best care they possibly can. And that's what we've been able to do up to now. So the the parameter of looking at intensive care unit bed usage in the country is really, really important. Mary, thanks so much for explaining all that to us and, and particularly when, when you're in your spare time away from the front line, which I know is rare at the moment. Um, I think it is really helpful that we are armed with some ways of, of hearing and, and parsing and dealing with the data that we are given every day, particularly the really upsetting um, figures, you know, the, the ones about people dying, losing their lives to this virus. And as we try and navigate our way through this odd new world that we live in. Uh, and thank you to John and Nikki for helping us to do the same on this episode of The Explainer. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Nikki, Mary and John for their time and work on this episode. And as I mentioned at the start of this podcast, we are doing an appeal to readers for contributions. If you enjoy this podcast or any of the other work of the Journal.ie team, you'll find information on the Journal.ie forward slash contribute. If you enjoyed this chat and learned something, we have loads more for you. Check out our back catalogue where you'll find other shows on the coronavirus and a lot more. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by executive producer Christine Bohan, producer Aoife Barry, assistant producer and tech operator Nikki Ryan. If you're enjoying the episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And more importantly, share with a friend who you think will enjoy them. Thank you and catch you next time. Hold up. 